Crossstream Music presents Something Worth Suffering For The Ideas That Drive Crosstree Music By Andrew Bibb Read by the author Chapter 3 The Cycle of Faith That man is perfect in faith who can come to God in the utter dearth of his feelings and his desires without a glow or an aspiration with the weight of low thoughts, failures, neglects, and wandering forgetfulness, and say to him, Thou art my refuge, because thou art my home. George MacDonald But we know that all that God bestows needs time to become fully our own. It must be held fast and appropriated and assimilated into our inmost being. Without this, not even Christ's giving can make it our very own in full experience and enjoyment. Andrew Murray The journey of faith is one that takes us through many phases of development, but simple reliance on Christ is always the cornerstone of what we do. The processes involved are simply different stages in the growth and solidifying of that reliance as we move towards spiritual resilience and maturity. To live in the divine manner requires this. The Apostle Peter gives us a roadmap of what growing in faith looks like. God has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Christ, who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. These qualities, virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love are not independent from each other. They are steps in the development of our faith in Christ, in which each virtue leads to the next one. This cycle is a strengthening of faith, making us more capable and durable as agents of Christ, and more effective in conveying His life and love to the world. It is this process that takes us from being like Fanninus, the first time he was imprisoned and let go of his faith, to the second, at which point he was strong enough to go through even death with his faith intact. We mature like Peter, who in the early stages of faith, denied Jesus in his time of need, but went on to become one of the leading witnesses of his resurrection. He met death with all of the courage that naturally comes with a resilient faith. What Peter describes in the passage above is the process that the Holy Spirit guides us through as we learn to depend on Christ. In this chapter, we will explore these steps and learn how to recognize them in ourselves. The most important thing to remember, however, is that faith, Reliance upon Christ is at the root of this process. To worry about godliness before determining that Jesus is reliable as Savior is nonsensical and will only lead to frustration. Put another way, faith leads the band, the other virtues follow, and love brings up the rear. Virtue is moral excellency, manly, strenuous energy, answering to the virtue, energetic excellency, of God. The first change we start to see when we choose to rely on Christ is a shift in the way that we approach life. Faith in the love of Jesus gives us purpose, 
So instead of living a lazy, self-serving, and impotent lifestyle, we begin to act with more tenacity, focused aggression, and determination. If you have ever seen anyone sincerely embrace faith in Jesus for the first time, or remember when you did so yourself, you probably noticed an initial surge of passion, a drive to do something of worth for him. The reality is that this is sometimes only temporary, and if there is no development of faith after that initial decision, any newfound sense of purpose will wither away. In a letter to a woman who had recently decided to become a Christian and was experiencing these passionate feelings, C.S. Lewis advised, Don't imagine it is all going to be an exciting adventure from now on. It won't. Excitement of whatever sort never lasts. This is the push to start you off on your first bicycle. You'll be left to do lots of dogged pedaling later on. And no need to feel depressed about it either. It will be good for your spiritual leg muscles. So enjoy the push while it lasts, but enjoy it as a treat, not as something normal. The essence of virtue is not in the feeling, but in the resolution and the growing awareness of Christ's reliability. As faith ceases in its growth, so does virtue. But if we become deliberate about growing in our reliance upon Christ, we will never be without a clear sense of purpose and identity. This produces the resolution to embrace whatever next step God has for us. The Apostle Paul wrote concerning Jesus, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Paul's faith was invigorated by a Christ-centered energy, or virtue, because he fully embraced the purpose for which God had created him. We should not worry if we are not sure of the specifics of God's plan for our lives. We are simply to do what he wants us to do now, in the present. He will let us know what we need to know when it is time for us to know it. He is never late, but he is never early either. Yet another one of the great aspects of faith is that we can always be growing, no matter where we are or what we are doing. Spiritual growth, like that of a tree, happens in two directions. The trunk and branches of a tree grow up to the sky, but only in proportion to how deep into the ground its roots grow. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. We cannot be at our absolute most productive all the time, just as a tree only bears fruit in the right season. But we can always be deepening our roots through learning to rest and trust in Christ. The actions we take for Christ, the fruit, are not faith. The faith is the root, and the fruit is the outgrowth of that faith. The quality of fruit that is produced is in proportion to the depth of faith. So the deeper the faith, the greater the fruit. When it seems like we are going through a dry and dull season of life, it is not necessarily because we are doing something wrong. It may simply be an opportunity to refocus, to learn to trust Jesus more fully and completely, and to grow our roots deeper into Him, so that when the time comes to bear fruit, we are that much stronger, more capable, and more durable. The book of Numbers gives us an example of what this reliance-driven virtue looks like in action. The nation of Israel was about to enter the land that was promised to them by God. 
they sent out an advance party of 12 spies to determine and report on the state of the land and of the enemy forces that occupied it. These were not ordinary Israelites being sent out, but chiefs from each of the 12 tribes. They scouted the land for 40 days and brought back valuable intelligence, as well as samples of the fruit of the land. They verified that the land was green, lush, and prosperous. They also reported that the people were strong and vicious. They reported seeing giants among the inhabitants of the land. Caleb, one of the spies, advocated for a full-scale assault. Ten of the other spies failed to share his confidence. They came up with a myriad of excuses as to why they could not take the land that God had promised them. They somehow got the idea that God either could or would not accomplish what he said he would. They may have started their journey in faith, but they lacked what Caleb and another spy, Joshua, had, resiliency of faith or virtue. The people of Israel sided with the timid spies. They rejected God's promise and would have stoned Joshua and Caleb if not for the supernatural intervention of God himself. Joshua and Caleb were distraught at Israel's refusal to trust God. They knew that if the creator of the universe promised something, he would make good on that promise. They also realized the danger that lay in the rejection of that promise. Seeing the cowardice and unbelief of the people, God promised that their dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness, and of all your number, listed in the census from twenty years old and upward, who have grumbled against me. Not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell, except Caleb and Joshua. After wandering the desert for forty more years, Joshua and Caleb were the only adults in the nation still alive to return to the promised land. It would be easy to understand if at the end of these 40 years, Joshua and Caleb had lost the zeal and resiliency that characterized their younger years. But their attitude was the same as it had been four decades earlier. As Caleb announced, Now, as you can see, the Lord has kept me alive and well, as he promised for all these 45 years since Moses made this promise. Even while Israel wandered in the wilderness, Today I am 85 years old. I am as strong now as I was when Moses sent me on that journey, and I can still travel and fight as well as I could then. So give me the hill country that the Lord promised me. You will remember that as scouts we found the descendants of Anak living there in great walled towns. But if the Lord is with me, I will drive them out of the land, just as the Lord said. Some seem to think, that passivity and cowardice please God. On the contrary, there is nothing more disappointing to God than one who will not trust Him, because without faith it is impossible to please Him. There is nothing that pleases Him more than one who will rely on Him completely and without apology, even when they do not feel like it. Virtue is the point in the development of faith that it begins to solidify. It is integrity. Without virtue, faith would not have the vitality to make it through the following steps in its development. It would wither prematurely. Virtue is the strengthening of our faith to be able to continue its growth and is manifested in the way we conduct ourselves, in excellence of character. If faith is the confidence that Christ will come through, knowledge is understanding what part he wants us to play. And if virtue is supernatural energy and tenacity, then knowledge is what provides direction for that energy. 
After our initial decision to rely on Christ, our faith must be cultivated by an increase in knowledge regarding who He is, what He has said, and what He wants us to do. This results in a greater sensitivity to His leading. An increase in knowledge should not promote pride, but provoke us to depend on Jesus even more. It makes us more aware of our insufficiencies and our need for a Savior. Through knowledge, we come to more deeply realize our need for Him, increasingly understanding Him as the fulfillment of our deepest desires. The more we realize this fact, the more we are willing to surrender our wills to His. The more we surrender to Him, the more we are eager to obey Him, knowing that His is the only long-term plan worth following. Josiah, a descendant of King David, was king of the nation of Judah for 31 years. After the death of his father at the hands of his own servants, Josiah began his reign as an eight-year-old boy. Eight was also the age he began to seek the God of David, his father. This was a very practical choice for the young king to make. Look at the situation from Josiah's standpoint. He is eight years old and is put in charge of running a nation. Naturally, he wants to be a great king, a great warrior, and a great man. He does not want mediocrity. He wants to be the best, so he looks for the best example to emulate. His father is the polar opposite of greatness and nobility, so he digs back even further into his family history, eventually coming to the records that chronicle the reign of King David. David was the ultimate warrior king. He was good to his friends and a terror to his enemies. He was feared and respected by all who knew his name. He brought down giants, killed lions and bears with his bare hands, wed princesses, and defeated army after army on the field of battle. He was anything but a pushover, but he was loved for his commitment to justice as well as his generosity to those less fortunate. David was everything Josiah wanted to be, so Josiah sought to unlock the secret to David's success. He realized that David could not have done what he did but for the favor of his God. But the book of the law, which recorded God's covenant with the Israelites and what he expected of them, was lost. Eventually, a priest rediscovered this book and read it to Josiah. Rather than take pride in the discovery, Josiah's reaction was one of complete humility. He tore his clothes and swore to God that he would follow the book word for word. He tore down all idols and monuments in the nation because they dishonored the true God, and he slaughtered the priests that attended them. He reinstated the laws and rituals that had been abandoned and brought all of his people back into an attitude of humility before God. As a result, it was said, Before him there was no king like him, nor did any like him arise after him. Not only did he have the zeal, he gained the knowledge with which to direct it. For many people, an increase in knowledge means an increase in their pride, but the knowledge of God produces humility. The gospel exposes us, demanding naked humility. It insists the focus be entirely on God and Jesus, and it doesn't let us take any credit. The more we learn, the more we realize that there is much we do not know, and the more we are okay with that fact. We start to realize that God has us well taken care of, regardless of how ignorant we can be, as long as we are committed to trusting Him. Growing in knowledge is not just an intellectual exercise. Knowledge is the realization of our deep need for a Savior, and as a result, 
increased understanding of Christ as he shows himself to be that for us. It is not just about intellectual ascendance, but an internal knowing. It is the difference between reading about Rome and actually standing in the Colosseum, or reading a book about combat and getting into a firefight. It is not coming up with big words to describe God, but it is developing an appreciation for even the subtlest aspects of his being as we depend on him. We are not supposed to live our lives on this earth as ignorant children. We all know that growing up makes life more difficult and complicated, but also more interesting. There are new questions and issues to be confronted, but because we are more willing to rely on Christ, the scope of the adventures we are willing to undertake broadens. The end result is a greater awareness of our union with Christ. The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The purpose of faith is intimacy with God, and this intimacy comes through Christ because he is the image of God. The more we come to know Jesus internally, meaning not only with our heads, but also with our hearts and through our actions, the more accurately we know God and are able to enjoy him as the fulfillment of our core desire. While knowledge is a vital step in the development of faith, we should not be discouraged when we fail to understand something. Dr. Heiser explains, We may not completely understand things like God becoming a man in Jesus or how the resurrection could happen. That's okay. God doesn't demand we figure it all out and then get back to him to take a final exam. He wants belief. Understanding why these things are rational can wait. Self-control is the ability to do what is necessary to achieve true fulfillment rather than temporary comfort or satisfaction. What we really want, the core desire, is often different than what we feel like we want at the time, the temporary desire of the flesh. Self-control is the ability to see through these feelings and emotions, pinpoint our long-term and God-given desires, and refuse to be distracted from that goal. It is not the denial of our wants and desires, but the realization we find their fulfillment only in Christ. Self-control is not passivity or lack of aggression. It is focused aggression. It is the ability to kick the intensity into high gear when you need to, while at the same time knowing when it is time to throttle back and let God work. During his time on earth, Jesus was the perfect example of controlled aggression. He was not the meek, mild pacifist so popular with some modern writers, who place all their stress on Jesus' admonition to turn the other cheek. They never mention, Do not think that I have come to bring peace on earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Matthew 10.34 And all sayings aside, the image of meekness is entirely incompatible with the Jesus who is reported to have looked around at them with anger. Mark 3.5 who often verbally skewered Pharisees and who drove money changers out of the temple. When the temple of Jerusalem was being defiled, Jesus hand-fashioned a whip and drove those who were there for the wrong reasons out of the complex. 
This was a very violent, aggressive move on his part. But once he accomplished what he set out to do, he returned to teaching, healing, and loving. He was protective when it came to ensuring that the house of prayer be honored. He wanted nothing to interrupt the true worshipers in their prayers to his father, but he also had the self-control to know when to adopt a compassionate tone. Self-control is also a prominent characteristic in those believers who give their lives for the sake of the message of Jesus. No one ever feels like enduring torture and death, but the long-term desires of the martyrs, reunion with their Savior, is more important to them than their temporary physical wants. One of these was named Polycarp. Polycarp was a student of the Apostle John and head of the group of Christians at Smyrna. He was captured and condemned to be burned at the stake unless he would give up his faith in Christ. His answer was, 86 years I have served him, and he never once wronged me. How then shall I blaspheme my king who has saved me? Polycarp's captors sentenced him to be nailed to a stake and burned but he assured his persecutors that he would not try to escape, so he was tied with ropes instead. The wood upon which he stood was lit, but, true to his word, he did not try to escape. The greatest act of self-control that has ever been committed was that of Jesus' sacrifice of himself. Not only did he endure physical and emotional torment at the hands of the religious and political elite, but all of the forces of hell also massed together to drive Jesus to his breaking point. It was too late before they discovered that they had made a fatal mistake, and for the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. James gives what may be the best explanation of steadfastness and its benefits. He writes, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Steadfastness, or patience, is endurance. It is the point in the development of faith when it is tested in the heat of life's difficulties and purified of its defects. The purer a substance is, the stronger, more durable, and more valuable it is. Our faith is no different. The more intense the pressure that it stands up under, the purer it becomes. It is this purity that defines its quality. But the patience that James calls for is not to be mere stoical endurance, but united to and flowing from God-trusting. We have to remember the centrality of desire if we are to see the benefits of enduring hardship. We have already established that faith in Christ is the only way to Him, the fulfillment of our core desires, the desires of the heart. If building endurance through hardship and trials purifies and solidifies our faith, then every trial can be embraced as another step in our journey towards realizing the desires of our heart, because the stronger our faith is, the closer we are to those desires becoming reality. Consequently, there is no such thing as the perfecting of faith behind closed doors. In fact, the principles of faith are more applicable to day-to-day -day relationships, the workplace, or the battlefield than even the church auditorium. It takes no faith to sit in a pew. Faith becomes much more real and necessary when you are dealing with difficult people, assaulted by a shower of bullets, or fired from your job. 
A positive effect of experiencing difficult or dangerous situations is that they reveal the sincerity of your faith, both to yourself and to others. There is no pretending in a high-risk situation. Many people do everything they can to avoid risk, but for the individual who sincerely wants to reach perfection of faith, there is no getting around the need for some. While the risk may be emotional and not necessarily physical, it is still very real not simulated risk where you will probably be fine if it does not work out, but real risk where if God fails, you fail. Fortunately, the greater the risk, the greater the payoff at the end, and God never fails to reward those who trust him. David, a man with considerable experience and combat-hardened faith, wrote, Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. There is no better place to be than within the protective and nourishing shield of the love of God, even if on the outside it is the most dangerous environment imaginable. The Apostle Paul wrote, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He wrote this to the believers at Philippi to encourage them in their faith assuring them that no matter what kind of rut they were in, if they would only be patient and endure in their faith, Jesus would never cease to develop them until the day he returns. Paul would know. As he wrote these words, he was likely near the end of a two-year sentence in a Roman prison. Even in the midst of such uncomfortable and inhospitable conditions, he was able to encourage others because he himself was encouraged by the promise of being reunited with Christ. Later in the letter, he writes that I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance, and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul discovered that the secret to contented endurance is simple, aggressive, constant reliance upon Jesus. He is a great example of what even an ordinary man is capable of when he chooses to depend on Christ to be his strength and comfort regardless of the circumstances. Godliness, or reverence, is the point in the development of faith that comes when we have so much appreciation for Christ that we begin acting like Him. It is not something that comes simply through intellectual assent, but by the development of honest faith to the point where you have practiced it so much that you adopt a Christ-like way of thinking. It is sort of a faith-driven morality. We begin to hate what He hates and love what He loves, not because society says we should, but because our likes and dislikes are so linked to those of Christ that if it hurts him, it hurts us, and if it pleases him, it pleases us. It is sensitivity to his will. Reverence is the stage in faith development that the writer of Hebrews describes, but solid food is for full-grown men, for those whose senses and mental faculties are trained by practice to discriminate and distinguish between what is morally good and noble and what is evil and contrary either to divine or human law. We no longer need to be told what to do and not to do in every situation. We begin to simply know because we have started to think like Jesus thinks. That is not to say that we should not rely on him for guidance. That should be an all-day, everyday attitude. 
It means that it becomes easier to be led by him, because we are starting to see reality in the same way he does, for what it really is. Reverence, or intense respect, is not something we can just conjure up on our own. We need a reason to have this level of respect for someone. They must have earned it. As we learn to trust God and take risks with and for Him, our respect for Him grows with each trial He sees us through. Of course, we are reverent towards Him because He is God, Creator, and King, but that respect becomes intensely personal when we experience Him in our own lives. It is like the difference between a gun enthusiast who collects weapons as a hobby and a soldier or law enforcement officer whose very life could depend on that weapon. There is a different kind of reverence when you actually have to rely upon something rather than just compliment or criticize it. This personal and empirical appreciation of Christ, the kind that comes only after experiencing life with him, is reverence. The writer of Hebrews describes reverence as the result of God's having revealed and proven himself to the world in the person of Jesus. And beyond all question, the secret of reverence is great. Who was revealed in the flesh, declared right in spirit, was seen by messengers, was proclaimed among nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in esteem. Reverence springs out of knowing Jesus as Christ. This is why morality is bankrupt in the long run, apart from faith. Without faith in the love of Christ, what good is morality? If this life is all we have to look forward to, and God's goodness is not a factor, then why not live it up while we are here? If God is not interested in me, then I need to take care of my own temporary desires as best I can before I inevitably die. We saw in chapter 2 that Paul has no appreciation for resurrectionless morality. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. If the gospel is true, and God is interested not only in my life here, but also into eternity, then it is only logical that I choose to live in a way that is pleasing to him. An accurate picture of Jesus makes us more willing to depend on him. If our image of him is still that of him hanging naked on a cross, it is going to be difficult to accept that he is able to take care of us. But when we begin to see him as he is now, resurrected, all-powerful, all-loving, and as the warrior king described in the book of Revelation, then there is no limit to how much we are willing to rely upon him. On the contrary, not relying upon him begins to look stupid. Then I turned to see one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. The strongest, most powerful, and most loving being in existence wants to see to the eternal fulfillment of our desires. Who are we to deny him? Even now, he stands before God and the congregation, the heavenly sons of God. He confesses boldly that he feels no shame in having us as siblings in the family. 
It is by realizing this truth, the truth of the omnipotence and infinite love of Christ, that we come to revere him. Real affection for a brother or sister, whether we are related physically or through our common faith, is partly a result of our own confidence in Christ. If we are insecure and timid, there can never be any real depth of companionship. If we are not secure in who we are in Christ, then we either need to take our need for validation and approval to that other person, or we are too embarrassed to open up at all emotionally. This is a self-centered approach to a relationship, because we are seeing that person only in light of our needs rather than what is good for him or her. The best and most fruitful relationships are those in which both parties are confident and do not feel the need to compare themselves with each other. They play to their own strengths, are fine with not always being the center of attention, and elevate the needs of the other above their own. The connection between brotherly affection and faith is this. Realistic confidence comes only through the development of faith. Faith is, at bottom, confidence in Christ. The greater the confidence, the greater the relationship potential. So the ability to treat those close to us with care and consideration without being insecure about our own identity, is a direct result of faith. When we start to realize our own value in Christ, we position ourselves to give rather than always being the one to receive. We also realize that we have something God-given to offer and become willing to do our part to help others as much as possible. On the flip side, some people have issues receiving from others due to a lack of confidence. They will give and give until there is nothing left but refuse to be given anything because it makes them feel weak and dependent. Faith solves this problem as well. Because of our reliance upon Jesus, we can see the generosity of others as an avenue for his provision. It is no longer about feeling inferior to any man or woman because our faith is not in them. It is in Jesus. If he chooses to use them as the means by which he takes care of us, that is his prerogative as God. We are then able to appreciate the person rather than feeling indebted and obligated to them. We do what we can to care for them, just as they did for us, but our confidence is not in the person doing the giving. It is in Christ himself. David and Jonathan are prime examples of faith-driven brotherly affection. Because they found their security and identity in God, they were free to care for each other without any self-centered reservation. Both of these men had a faith that determined their sense of identity and purpose. So when they met, there was an immediate bond that can only take place through like-minded confidence in God. The soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Jonathan knew this affection resulted from shared confidence in God, saying, The Lord is between you and me forever. Given their acts of extreme courage and outrageous military exploits, these men would be the last anyone would accuse of being soft or weak. Yet amidst their heroics, they were also able to remain sensitive to each other's needs. Jonathan, the son of King Saul, was heir to the throne of Israel. When Saul observed that as long as David lived, he was a threat to Jonathan's kingly inheritance, Jonathan did not mind in the least. His confidence in the will of God was such that he did not need to become king to validate himself. And if God had chosen David to become king, then that was Jonathan's wish as well. Instead of trying to have David killed, Jonathan saved his life. 
David, years after Jonathan's death, returned the favor by receiving one of his descendants as a member of his own household. The strength of their brotherly affection outlasted even death. The difference between brotherly affection and love is that brotherly affection concerns how you interact with those close to you, those you depend on and interact with regularly. Love concerns how you interact with everyone, including those who have nothing to offer you. But the same principle of faith applies. Confidence in the love of Christ frees us to love others without hesitation or fear for our own well-being. Faith turns us into men and women who have nothing to lose and everything to give. Nothing to lose because our dreams and desires are secure in Christ, and everything to give because we are representatives of the King of the universe. Paul explains how we can live unencumbered by fear, writing, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. He goes on to explain how this faith is played out in our day-to-day lives. He identifies love as the product of this mentality. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So faith in Christ is what binds us to God. Love is what binds us to each other. When it is embraced, true faith, that connection with love himself, naturally resolves itself into love for others. Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector during the time of Jesus, and was probably insecure both due to his small stature and the stigma attached to his profession. Tax collectors were known as cheaters and manipulators. When Zacchaeus heard about Jesus, he went to see what all the talk was about. He climbed up into a tree to get a better view, which caught Jesus' attention. Jesus told him to come down and, disregarding the self-righteous grumblings of the crowd, invited himself to stay at Zacchaeus' house. Zacchaeus received him joyfully. After his encounter with Jesus, he immediately resolved to give half of what he owned to the poor and to pay back anyone he had cheated four times what he owed. The key element in this story is Jesus' acceptance of Zacchaeus even before he had done anything to earn it. Before this meeting, Zacchaeus had put his faith in his own cunning and had perhaps begun to see himself as the religious crowd saw him nothing more than a legally sanctioned thief. Once he put his faith in the approval of Jesus, however, things changed instantly. His faith in the approval of Christ immediately resulted in the ability to love others, as well as forgive himself as he had not been able to before. As we press on towards a deeper intimacy with Christ, our outlook on life begins to mature as our faith deepens. No matter who we are, if we have put our faith in Jesus, We have initially done so for a completely self-serving reason. We want to be sure of where we go when we die. We do not want to be lonely and depressed anymore. We want the sense of purpose, identity, and peace that only he can give, and so on. Whatever the reason, it was a completely self-interested one. And there is nothing wrong with that. That is the way God designed it to work. That is faith. Taking your needs, wants, and desires to Christ instead of trying to find a cheap substitute. But that is the beginning, not the end. Love is the natural end state of mature faith. This is especially true of love for Christ himself. 
The more we depend on him, the more we have cause to appreciate him. It is also true that the more we love him, the more we are willing to depend on him and convey his love to others. This appreciation for God takes us right back to the beginning, where the process of spiritual development started in the first place, simple reliance. And so, the cycle of faith begins again. Faith is not a destination, but a process. It is not about being perfect, but being perfected. Just like a tree starts out as a seed and then spends some time as a sapling, God does not expect us to begin our spiritual journey with the faith of an apostle. All he expects is that we are constantly willing to grow, and he himself will provide the growth. This is how we are able to lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. If we dig our roots deeper, he will provide the increase up top. Paul explained to the Corinthians, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. So if there is any rule that we should live by, it is this. Always be learning to rely on Christ more. The harder we lean into him, the less power other imperfect supports have over us. This assures that we will always be growing in faith, and since faith comes by increased intimacy with Christ, then we can always be growing regardless of environment or circumstance. All it takes is a conscious decision to rely on Christ and a willingness to be shaped and strengthened by Him. We all mess up. The thing that separates those who succeed from those who fail is the willingness to ask forgiveness and get back in the fight. No amount of falls will really undo us if we keep on picking ourselves up each time. Jesus' disciple Judas was not the only one who betrayed Jesus on the night that he was crucified. Peter denied him three times. Judas ended his life by hanging himself. Peter became one of the leaders of the early church. The difference was in Peter's willingness to ask forgiveness and get back up versus Judas' failure to do so. Peter learned that if God forgives us, we must forgive ourselves. Otherwise, it is almost like setting up ourselves as a higher tribunal than him. Even after that incident, Peter made mistakes, but they became less frequent as his reliance on Jesus grew and became stronger. He died a very strong and fulfilled champion of unapologetic reliance. Faith is almost too simple for some people to accept. Dr. Heiser has noticed that a lot of people who attend church don't really understand the gospel. Some can't articulate it. Others who can express it coherently often struggle with truly surrendering to its simplicity. They suffer inside over truly believing that the gospel is all that's necessary for everlasting life. But it is usually the simple truths that have the biggest impact. Simple, but not always easy. Sometimes the hardest thing in the world to do is simply trust Jesus, but it is always the best course of action in the long run. Because we can be sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening to Something Worth Suffering For, the ideas that drive Crosstree Music. For free Crosstree Music and other content, visit crosstreemusic.com.